You are in the Grotto Pod. We are in the Grotto Pod. We're all in the Grotto Pod together, and frankly, there's not a lot of room. Welcome to this episode of the Grotto Pod. Our guest will be Constance Hale. Known to us as Connie. Known to us here in the Grotto as Connie, uh, known as a grammar maven. I bet she'd be mad if you said that. I don't know. She's not here yet. We're going to have her in here in a couple minutes. Uh, Three books of grammar, one book. uh, Two Two books of grammar. I thought she wrote three books of grammar. This is great preparation on my part. Yeah, I I know she has five books. Well, we'll clear this up in a moment. I could be wrong. Before she gets in here, uh, BQ, I'd like you to share with me uh, your experiences of the past weekend. For those of you out there listening, Bridget was in Washington, D.C., where it was all happening. I was. Wow, there was a lot. Speaking of grammar... There was a lot of bad grammar. There was some, well, I wouldn't say bad grammar. Actually, no. I was, here's the thing that amazed me most about the signs at the Women's March in Washington. They were grammatically correct. They were grammatically correct and anatomically correct. A lot of anatomy. Yeah. A lot. Yeah. And I went with my friend who I went to grad school with in art history. And he remarked on all of the correct punctuation being used in the signs. Well, I mean, I, I, I guess that would be pretty consistent with the, the, the narrative that the educated people are the ones opposing the president. Oh, I like that. I hadn't thought of it that yeah, way. There sure. were also very many repurposed uh, art historical vignettes, I guess you'd say. Oh, vignettes so. maybe the wrong. Oh, like um, Courbet's The Origin of the World. I don't know if you know that painting, I but don't. it's... I'm a little... I, I took now probably not, a good time to confess to you. I'm a little light on the art history. Okay. Well, it's a super pornographic pussy shot. Okay. Here's the... Thing. Done by Courbet, who was an early realist. So mm. we saw more than one of those, which I was fascinated by. Got and it. also so well done. I, you know, I... I <laughs> Larry, please know, Larry is turning... Kristen, green. I'm, a, I'm a, let's just okay. I'll just tell all of our listeners. I'm a square. I am a square. I am the guy that San Francisco exists to make uncomfortable. And in this case, you know, anatomically correct posters. I understand it's you know in your face, and you got to just deal. But uh, it's a, it's a. But, but this is the funny part. It's 19th century art. Yeah, that it's is so funny. square. It's so square. That's what made it hilarious to us. But maybe not to, not to those who maybe didn't know it was a Courbet reference. Right. The other 99. Um, they probably just thought it was porn. Ooh, more porn. Um, <laughs> but, but I, I think found porn it very funny. Probably, porn flew fine in, in that march. I don't think anyone was getting mad at the anatomically graphic. The feminists are not so hot on porn. Depends on which wave. Exactly. Which wave of feminism. Uh, it's true. About. But there was there were so many funny signs. There were very moving signs, but uh, really the grammar and the spelling were, were excellent. Very uh, top top draw. That is good to know, and I'm glad you know you're keeping it in a sort of writer focused mm-hmm. uh, line of questioning or line of discussion observation. But now you're back. You brought back with you a cold. Which yeah, I'm, I'm a little sick. A little, uh, little Here's congestion. the thing: if you get on a subway with twelve thousand other people. Mm-hmm. And you all breathed together Ugh. for a very, very, okay, very long time because really, they were running slow. Did I mention I'm squeamish up, as well? And you would not have liked this. No, probably so, not. So, and then there's people sneezing. Uh, I mean, it was uh, it germ was factory. such the petri they could dish. Have called the March germ factory. Exactly. And so, actually, all of us ended up getting sick. Um, so and now would be a good time sick. if you were someone who wanted to. Uh, Reverse the effects of the Women's March since yes. everyone who attended them is probably sick. Yeah. Now would be a good time. Everyone's weakened. I don't know what you want to oh, do. Like, but I'm just uh, saying, see, I was, if you I, were like a Trump. Because what I was to, thinking at the time was. I don't think he cares, actually. I don't think he cares. No. I don't think he's aware of it. I don't I know. I actually heard uh, him interviewed and he didn't. He's like, the, the, the interview, did you see that? Like, no, I didn't. I know. He also said it never rained when he was speaking during the inauguration. Yeah, so. but Jerry Jeff Walker said it never rains in California. I mean, that lie's been going on forever. Okay. Well, I do think there's lies and there's just delusional sure, living. Sure. So that's kind of my take on it. But I was going to say that uh, I did have the thought. Because, of course, since the election, I've felt that I am living in a science fiction novel (laughs) that if I wanted to um, disarm the opposition, I would have sprayed something terrible into the subway tunnels. I think they're called the Metro in D.C. They are, and they're one of the finest uh, mass transit systems in the world. Very clean, having Uh, lived in New York for many years. That is very sci-fi to spray something. And I think if my kid was here, he could tell me what sci-fi movie they've done it in. Maybe we're all Living we could all be well, you know unable to reproduce now. Insect it's possible lately. 
All right. Well, uh, but to segue. But I'm glad you're back. You know, I'm, I'm glad, glad you're healthy enough to talk with me in this tiny me little room. Me too. I hope I'm not breathing on you. Oh my uh, god, it's I'm a very probably small, still. But I'm a little bit sick myself. So actually, the only person Poor at risk Connie. here could be our guest, Connie. So rather than waste any time before getting her ill, yeah, let's bring her on in here and okay. share some germs. Okay, let's do it. Uh, we've been introed. Welcome, Connie, to the Grotto Pod. She squeezed in. She squeezed in. There was a little <laughs> dance you all missed. I know. Uh, it made is, me feel kind of... Which is a good segue. Connie, of course, is a, an accomplished hula dancer. Yes. Accomplished. Tell that us a little... Okay. serious. So there's a lot of things to talk about with you. You're a, you are a grammarian? That is such a nasty thing to call me. Oh, jeez. I'm already I, do, I, I, love... I started with grammar maven. I said, is that okay or is that a pejorative? Try, is it because it sounds I like stentorian? language maven. Language But the thing maven. is, I'm known. Who were, who were you on acid? You were someone on acid. E.B. White on e. B. acid. E.B. White on acid. I now, think E.B. White might actually have, called, have been on acid at one time. Yes, but you wouldn't ever have called E.B. White a grammarian, would you now? Uh, I don't know E.B. White. <gasps> What? I mean, I know of him. Of course, I yes. had to read it. I'm more familiar oh, with as his a grammarian stepson's mean. work, however. Oh, yeah, because you're a sports guy. Right, Roger Angel. But the thing is, I'm, so that's why I don't like the label grammarian, because it, it has connotations <laughs> of librarians and nasty third so grade just, teachers. So just the Ian and, part you don't like. Do you have no, a thing it's, with so it's really, Ian as well? I think it's a word that we lack in our language. What is the word? It used to be maybe philologist. Nice. Ooh. A person who loved words, right? I love it. That's what I Not am. Not to be confused I'm, with a philatelist, which is a stamp collector. Correct. So, and I love stamps too, but so the, what I really love is I love words and I love the magic of sentences. To me, that's very different from saying I'm a grammarian. Yeah. yeah. And what, I, what I'm most interested in is not grammar, but literary style. Okay. So how do you put words together in such a way to have your own voice to affect a reader in a certain emotional way? So that's why just grammarian doesn't do it for grammarian. me. Grammarian. Well, it sounds a little like school marm too, which I can understand exactly. you wouldn't like. But and you, you know, but that's what makes suddenly me feel there's this real connection between your love of language and your love of hula. Because to me, as someone who has read your book, The Natives Are Restless, and who has loved Hawaiian culture, when I see hula, it is like seeing language. Hmm. That is, that's true. It's storytelling for sure. Um, but, you know, the, my book, so I, just going back to the grammarian thing for a second, I very conscientiously did not use the word grammar in my book. I used syntax. Okay. So sin and syntax allowed me to indicate that what I was interested in was actually sub, a, a subversive notion and I didn't use the word grammar. I used the word syntax. So there was you know, there was a lot I, of intention. Ironically, in that. if you look at my notes, you'll see I have grammar crossed out <laughs> and language written in its place. Thank you. <laughs> language let's, and um, but Let's I, start with syntax. Well, you know it's funny though because in, in terms of this connection between the writing about hula and writing about language, sometimes I was called the sassy sapphire. And I think the word sassy is the link, actually. Not that all hula is sassy, but a lot of it is. Huh, sassy. Yeah. I would think of it as languid. You know, oh, that's of, because you don't know hula. Well, of course I don't know hula. I'm a Jewish guy from Southern California. How would I know hula? But the stereotype of hula, so what most people have been exposed to in hula is sort of lyrical, languid, mm-hmm. sensuous, you know, a lot of words like that when in actuality hula is fierce. So are you saying that uh, type of hula doesn't really measure up to the hula standards that you've it's, set for it? It's like one-tenth or one-twentieth of okay. what hula is. There, those well, hulas exist and they're and they're... There are many authentic hulas that could be described that way. But I'm but talking about s- tourist hula. Huh? Yeah, it's a uh, small tourist hula. That's, that's my only experience or with Hollywood Hawaii. Hula. But you know, it's 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 chilly outside. Uh, BQ is just in Washington, where it's even colder. Let's go to Hawaii for a while. Want to go to Hawaii? Of course. Let's go oh, to Hawaii. You don't know, Larry. I, I always want to go to Hawaii. I don't know <laughs> your history. I just know Hawaii. So tell me a little bit about it. So you're a native Hawaiian. Well, I don't native call, born Hawaiian. Exactly. Ooh. So native Hawaiian Jeez, is the I'm, word I'm really that I, I and many today. people use for people who are of Polynesian, indigenous right. Hawaiian blood. You're like blood, a George Clooney not. and the Descendants Hawaiian. 
Not even because he had Hawaiian blood in him. I don't have an ounce oh. of Hawaiian blood. But I was born in Hawaii. How was, did your family end up there? My dad was in the military, okay. as was my grandfather. So my grandparents met when my grandfather was at Schofield Barracks, the storied Schofield Barracks. Pearl Harbor, from here to eternity? From here to eternity, for sure. And then, uh, so my parents, my dad was in the military, and my mom refused to live on a military base. So we lived in this little sugar plantation town. And I was born there in the plantation clinic, and we moved back and forth to the mainland when I was a kid a bit, and then my parents divorced, and I stayed in Hawaii. So most on which of my, island? On Oahu. On Oahu. The north shore of Oahu, which is as far away from Honolulu as sure. you can get. Mm-hmm. And is incredibly beautiful and storied. So yeah. growing up there as a non-native Hawaiian, what was that like? Well, it was pretty I weird. Actually, for one reason, let me interrupt because that's what I do. My wife lived there for three years on the Big Island, and she said it was a nightmare. Chased home, she? beat up six, seven, eight, nine, seven, eight, nine. I think. Yeah, it's tough. It's tough to yeah. be a Haole in Hawaii. Um, Haole is our Haole is the native Hawaiian word for stranger, and uh, now now it's come to mean honky. But um, it it ah, was see, uh, just like I told you before. Mm-hmm. It was it was hard, and it was easy. It was wonderful, and it was hard at times. So first of all, you're living in this amazingly beautiful place. My house was right on the beach. We listened. Wow. I listened to the waves every night as I went to sleep. Um, our playground was the beach and the ocean and on the other side of the house, the sugarcane field. So it was an idyllic place. Is it still like this now? To the, for many parts of my town are. Mm-hmm. There's a lot more wealth there now than there was. When I was growing up, it was sugar plantation workers, fishermen, and the occasional Honolulu family who had a rickety beach house. Um, it is now much more, you know, there are Microsoft millionaires there. But, um, but it's still... The ocean on one side, the mountains on the other side. Yeah. There aren't sugarcane fields anymore, but they are trying to keep it agricultural. So it's still pretty beautiful and idyllic in many ways. I loved Hawaiian culture, and there were a lot of Hawaiians in my hometown. So I loved learning the hula as part of school. We had a May Day festival every year, and you learned a hula every year. So how old were you when you first learned the uh, non-language hula? Seven. Seven years old. Seven years old when I started taking hula lessons. And um, so all of that was wonderful, but it was also very mixed race. There were very few haoles in my hometown. And if you're the one, if no matter what, you know, where you live in the world and what race you are, There's none if of you. you happen to be the one who is different from most everyone else, you're going to catch it. And well, so road. I got a lot of it. But the perspective that I have that is different from probably your wife's perspective, having grown up there and having very many friends who are from there, is that what white people don't realize when they go to Hawaii, that white people experience prejudice for probably the, maybe the first time in their lives when they go to Hawaii. What they don't realize is that everyone in Hawaii experiences prejudice. In Hawaii, it's very democratic. If you're a Filipino, you get made fun of for certain things. If you're Chinese, you get made fun of for other things. If you're a native Hawaiian, you get made <laughs> fun of for other things. So it's like Japanese, you're not a other things. Yeah, well, and there are jokes. About that in you know, there are many days. popular <laughs> songs that make yeah. fun of all the races, jokes that make fun of all the races. So what you, if you come from there, um, you may have a have had a hard time for being who you are, and if you are, but your skin sort of thickens because you realize everyone's getting it. It is. It's like playing sports, basically. Probably. Yeah, it's like being in a locker room, sounds like, ironically. But I think for people from the United States mainland who go there, it's quite a shock. Yeah, yeah. Because they've never experienced it. They've never been on the other side of the fence. Right, and it's also you're kind of entering a closed society, too. I mean, it's their place. Although, kind of grew up there, so part of the society? Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, I, I mean, you yeah. are part of the society. Yeah. You're, yeah. I was just thinking, you're as much a Native Hawaiian as anybody. Not Native Hawaiian. Not by the right, yeah. not by that term, but you know Wait, what I I just mean. use Islander. Because an you know, I'm from there. Uh, but in Hawaii, so nice. sometimes what you do is we make a differentiation Hawaii. between coast haoles and local haoles or mainland uh-huh. haoles and local haoles. So let's say you're a local haole, that means, oh, you're haole, but you're from here. You're one of us. I got it. Versus a coast haole or a mainland haole who is a, in some way a visitor and not part of the culture. That's <laughs> just awful. Can't you just be one of them? <laughs> Guess not. Okay. Um, <laughs> But to me, it sounds to me it sounds though a lot like um, I don't know. There's just there's this rich 
tumult of cultures of high and low culture, traditional and um, I don't know mainland culture that's coming in from the military or just from television. Uh, a place that does seem reflected in what I know of you. I hope so. Yeah. I do feel Hawaiian. Um, yeah. They say Hawaiian at heart. Um, and it is a tumult. It is a melting pot. There, the other thing is there are a lot of people who are mixed race and toy dog. Um, so it's it's quite distinct from other places on the in the United States, I think. And um, so my being from Hawaii, I think, relates to a lot of my books, okay. not necessarily all Good of segue. my journalism, because I do a lot of journalism. Mm-hmm. I write magazine articles about all kinds of things. But certainly the language, the interest in language has a lot to do with having grown up in Hawaii. And right. I grew up in this strange, I call it bilingual in English. My parents were both from the mainland. They were both educated in very nice colleges on the East Coast. They spoke grammatically correct English, and they expected grammatically correct English from us, at least at the dinner table. Then we would leave the dinner table and play with our friends or play on the beach or go to school, and no one else spoke that English. We spoke what we call pidgin English, what linguists call Hawaiian Creole, and it is a Creole. And uh, we spoke it naturally. We grew up with it. That in some way was as natural to us as grammatically correct English. And you easily switch back and forth. Totally switch back and forth. We loved it that my parents were incapable of speaking pidgin. Oh, you had a secret language. you can't really speak pidgin unless you grew up there. You can fake it and you can tell. And so we loved it that... Uh, we could lord pigeon over our parents in the way that they lorded grammatically correct English over us. When and you hang out with old friends, are you able to slip back into it? I do slip back into yeah. it. Not even old friends. I mean, you slip back into it yeah, unconsciously. sometimes unconsciously. Right. Uh, you'll hear you something in someone's voice, and then you'll make a slight adjustment, and then they'll make an adjustment, and then all of a sudden you're speaking pigeon or some form of huh. pigeon. Do you think Barack Obama really? does that? I'm sure he does that with his friends from school. Yeah. Um, But anyway, so that, by the time, you know, it was weird because I went to a private high school. I went to Barack Obama's high school, actually. Which high school was that? Punahou. It was Punahou, okay. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, we spoke standard English at Punahou and we wrote our papers a certain way. Is there a religious affiliation at Punahou? It was, the school was founded by missionaries in 1848. But it was founded, some chiefs gave the missionaries land for a school, and it was intended to educate both the children of the chiefs as well as the children of the missionaries. Mm-hmm. So it's a non-denominational school. We did have a chapel, but it was non-denominational. Okay. It's really considered an independent school, not mm-hmm. a parochial school. Um, at any rate, uh, you quickly figure out that the Funniest people are speaking pigeon. Mm. Or the, my, my real comeuppance was in sixth grade when we had a storytelling contest at my elementary school. And I had done an absolutely brilliant job Naturally. memorizing of Tico and the Golden Wings by Leo Leone. And that was my story that I was going to tell. And I was dramatic. I was practiced. I was perfect. I delivered my story and was sure that I was going to win the storytelling competition. And everyone else, oral tradition? Yeah, no, they liked it. It seemed like the audience was spellbound. And then Shah Bento got up and this told the completely cliched story of Alibaba and the 40 Thieves <sighs> in Pigeon. Brought down the house. Brought down the house. Brought down the house. Yeah. You know, you've got to know your audience, Connie. You've got to know your audience. Exactly. For my first lesson of writing, mm-hmm. right? And so, anyway, in Hawaii, you learn quickly this thing about language, which is that, that grammatically correct, perfect English is, is actually not great for storytelling. It's not necessarily the best English. And I think that— Which would seem to be a very important lesson to you. Well, it ended up— The way up, your career's gone or what you're interested it up, in. It ended up, I think— determining a lot of my career. Mm-hmm. And I have another story about I, I graduated from Punahou when I went to Princeton. and That's what I wonder about because there's a little code switching there. <laughs> yeah, a little what? culture shock. Well, that the most interesting thing that happened to me at Princeton was in I was taking modern British and American literature. Okay. And one will. my professor was a guy named Lawrence Lipking, who oh, was yeah. at the time an editor of the Norton Anthology of English Literature. Lightweight. Pretty big dude. 
And we were talking about D.S. Eliot, and I got really pissed off in class because I felt like we were talking about poetry and this poet that I loved, and we never talked about the sound of the words or the music mm. of the lines or the rhythm. All we ever talked about was cerebral stuff like um, – you know, the imagery or the allusions or the just this total brainiac nuts, nuts stuff. And, and I felt like we were missing the essence the of poetry. the poetry. Yeah. So I brought that up with him once after class. And I said, I'm so frustrated because I feel like, you know, I write poetry. I'm interested in poetry. And we never talk about this. And he says, you know what? Just Americans just don't have an ear for language. I try to get students to talk about it. And my questions fall like lead balloons. And he said, uh, he said, you know, for example, let's look at this. And he pulled down a book off of his shelf, and I think it was like Keats, Hyperion, a fragment, something like that. And he asked me to describe the poetry, and I made my best attempt to do it, talking about breathy vowels and this and that. And he said, well, you know, you seem to have an ear for language. And I, at that point, was really pretty embarrassed. And I said, well, you know, it's probably because I grew up speaking pidgin English. And he said, pidgin what? And then I was like, oh, I really dug myself a hole here. Because I was <laughs> kind really of ashamed. not know what it was? Oh, no, no, not at all. the term? The, the, and, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. Norton's I've heard the term anthology with, of English literature, Bridget? i the term without it used correctly, you know. Right. Well, I mean, a pigeon is, you know, he may have known what pigeon Englishes were, but mm-hmm. pigeon English, as we use in Hawaii. And then I was really embarrassed because then all of a sudden I realized that I, in one statement had confessed that I was from Hawaii, right. that I was Which not I didn't a rich was kid. That you confess. <laughs> well, at Princeton, at Princeton, I, can, yeah, <laughs> I get it. I was a scholarship student. I mean, there were a number of things yeah, that, I get that, that, I get that sort of came packed into that sentence. And uh, the fact that I grew up speaking pidgin was an indicator of my class, basically, and the fact hmm. that I was a country bumpkin. And so then I thought, okay, he said, well, pigeon. Then he said, can you can you show me some? Can you can you give? Because he demonstrate? was probably really interested. And so I thought, he wasn't oh, shit, how am, I, how am I going to demonstrate pigeon English? So I decided to tell Lawrence Lipking the story of Little Lay Puahi and the Wild Puaha which is Little Red Riding Hood in Hawaii. But we don't have a wolf because we don't have wolves in Hawaii. So instead we use a wild pua, which is one of those big hairy pigs with oh, that's right. oh. it was that you be. find up in the mountains. And so the story hairy of Little Lei Pua, he goes, uh, one day Little Lei Pua, he was... Came home from school and her mother went to tell, you know, I had to do been stay very sick. Mobile, you could take her some cookies or something, yeah? So, little Puahi, being one good mom, puna, go to the supermarket. She get that kind of wiki wiki cookies, you know. Pour them inside one bowl, a little bit water, one egg, 10 minutes in the oven, gonna be done. <laughs> she make those cookies, she put them in top of her lau hala basket and take off for a tutu, for a hale of her tutu. So I told the whole story to Lawrence Lipking, which well, the rats. climax is, you know, the wild pua is hiding behind a tree in the how tree forest, and he hears this sweet voice, and he steps out from behind the tree, and he goes, hey, who's this porky little wahini walking down a path? <laughs> <laughs> and Larry, the other Larry. So like, by, this time, by this time, I've completely forgotten all my self-consciousness, and I'm just getting into little ape wahini and the wild pua, and what's going to happen when, like, he, you know, cow cows that to do and she come to the door, and, you know, what, what's going to happen to her? So, anyway, he loved it. I hope he loved yes. it. And that was actually kind of the second moment for me when I was like... Oh, maybe maybe pigeon isn't something to be ashamed of. Mm-hmm. And maybe there's some sense to be made here. Like maybe it's given me something that I wasn't aware of. Mm-hmm. And a, an awareness of English and the way English works or some, some, some awareness of something that I could put to use. And that really was the moment mm-hmm. I think that sent me on this course of trying to figure out English not in the way my ninth grade grammar teacher taught me but in a way that would make sense of this paradox. Well, it must have been an empowering moment, too, to realize that what you had been trying to hide, mm-hmm. I'm from Hawaii, you know, I, I speak this pidgin English as well, actually meant you had a rich kind of soup that went into you that made this very unique worldview that mm-hmm. you could then yeah. apply. Yeah, and, and, and I think, you know, coming from a multicultural, multicultural kind of place, you just, your mind is more open to certain things. So I never saw black English as bad English or Spanglish as bad English. I saw them as linked to pigeon and 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 I was just always interested in what those Englishes told us about the King's English. And mm-hmm. that became the subject of my book. And that's why you're not a grammarian, because grammarian has that scoldy 
feeling yes. to it. Right. And you're so not like that. And when I first came to the grotto, I think I've told you this, I was terrified of emailing That's Connie. what you said, because you were afraid <laughs> it would come back with red marks all over it. Well, I was just afraid of making a mistake, because I'm weak like that, and because I'm from Montana, and I always have this feeling that I'm a little less than in terms of my grammatical correctness. No, definitely. And I've, I've been scolded many times in the past kind of thing. And I finally confessed that to Connie once, and she's like, nope, there's emails always get a pass. It's emails like always get a pass, but like the, 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 language. The, the fun of language is in the mistakes in a way. The fun of right. language is in the broken rules. So yeah, that's what's... Pushing it. Yeah, that's and what your, your, New York, uh, your New York Times opinionator columns always had the sense of fun in them and the fun mm-hmm. of language, not mm-hmm. the, come on, everyone, let's pile on the... Dumbasses who are doing it wrong. Yeah, yeah. Well, I definitely have. I mean, that's, I have a philosophy of this stuff, and I think that we're born with a love of language, and we're born inherent mm-hmm. to us is a sense of play in language. So I love looking, you know, four year olds, five year olds, the way they play with language, the way yeah. they react to nonsense language, the way they mm-hmm. giggle. Or it's just sort of musical sounds. Yeah, know? and they and they giggle over things, and they they like laugh over mistakes, and that's that's really the right attitude, and then that gets sort of um, conditioned out of us. So I'm trying to do the reverse. Well, I am just sorry that Sin and Syntax and your other two language books did not exist when I was a high school English teacher because we had to teach the most arid mm-hmm. grammar. I didn't want to teach it. You know, mm-hmm. like, we got to do it grammar. Yes, I don't want to do it. You don't want to do it. Mm-hmm. It was terrible. So, Sin and Syntax has been around a long time. Yeah. And 98, still, right? Yeah. yeah it was and longer ago than it's that still in print. Oh, not only still in print. Still it's selling well. 100,000 copies. 10 more, 10,000 more than that. 110,000? 110 now. You had to update that. So it's actually um, in its second edition, so it's been around long enough so that I was able to plea with the publisher to let me update it and add some things. So are you made aware of who's using it, like what schools have decided to use it? Yeah, kind of accidentally and anecdotally. So I have a list of teachers. I invite teachers to email me because I have lesson plans that go along mm-hmm. with it. So I find out what teachers all around the country and the world are using Sin and Syntax. And it's used a lot. In So here's the irony of Sin and Syntax. When I wrote it, first of all, Larry, I was you. I you was that English teacher I going, I don't want to use this grammar book that. with these students. Oh, so I, awful, I was right? teaching writing and I was teaching composition at the San Francisco Urban School. Oh. And I had all these really cool kids and I had to figure out how to give them a set of rules that actually worked. I didn't want to give them a set of rules that it didn't work. It is so work. hard. Like, don't start a sentence with and. Well, of course you can start a sentence yeah, yeah. with and. You know, don't uh, don't end a sentence with a preposition. Well, of course you can end a sentence with a preposition. Like, who made Never these use rules? You. Always use one. And so I thought, I really want to give them a set of rules that will work for them because they were frustrated and they wanted some rules that would help them. So that's really where the, the method of sin and syntax was born. But I wrote it. When I wrote it, I wrote it for adults and I wrote it for people who were either wanted to write professionally or – and maybe hadn't studied this stuff in school, like discovered mm-hmm. the love of writing late and, and felt that they were missing something. Or for people who never intended to write professionally but were in a situation where they had to. So maybe they had to do the, the company newsletter or hmm, yeah. you know, found themselves needing to write, never studied it. And could I give them something that would be really useful and would enliven their sense of language and help them enjoy the process of writing? And I, so I made it as untextbook-like as I could. Good move. It was not supposed to be a textbook. It didn't have exercises. Didn't look like a textbook. Didn't have the voice of a textbook. Has the word sin in the title. And um, the very adult <laughs> sense of humor. And I would say the first 40,000, 50,000 copies that sold probably sold to that very audience that I had pegged it for. And then teachers and students started discovering it. And the life in Sin and Syntax has been in community colleges, in mm, composition classes, in community colleges, in AP classes in high school. I mean, I really did not write it for high school students, but um, well, it's used it. a lot in AP classes. And then it is – and it's used even in MFA programs, in like style classes. And, and how, how like great that. is it when you can actually make a contact and a connection with the teacher – and you could be an actual person, you know, not just here's a book that somebody wrote. Yeah, no, and I love the idea that they that I can offer them something to help them teach and to help them teach in a new way. Uh, so the whole second life of sin and syntax has been as a textbook. 
So fantastic. So here you have, you have this golden goose in a way, the thing that all writers want to have. It's still in, I'm not saying golden Uh, goose like. I saw your blog, it's more like a tin goose. (laughs) I'm not saying golden goose like you're getting the golden egg every day. But then I also wrote, and I wrote a second book too. You know, so Mm -hmm. the second book is the title no one can remember, Vex, Hex, Smash, Smooch. I remember. Which was basically my editor's like, you know, we want another language book from you. What what can you give us? That's my question. So you wrote a second one. It's also fabulous. About verbs. Yes. And why not move right down the sentence structure? You go, there's a lot of other parts of the No, the, the only thing I, I really have said everything yet. that I need to say okay. in sin and syntax, and the only thing that was left to say was about verbs because there's so, first of all, verbs are the most important That's thing what's happening. in yeah. the sentence. And second, there's so many dimensions to verbs. Like mm-hmm. there's tenses and there are moods and there's passive voice and active voice, and there's, there's just a lot you could write to a whole book. say. <laughs> and that was the only Clever. thing. And my, my editor now, my editor wants another language book, and I'm like, I don't have it in me. What am I going to write about? I've done it. I want, let me write about hula. Verbs. Okay. But there you go. It is a language book. That takes us to the present, which I wanted to touch on as well. Um, the switch you made, or, would you call it an epiphany you had a couple years ago, talking about traditional publishing versus hybrid publishing. I really want to dig into that a little mm-hmm. bit. So you've released two books now mm-hmm. as hybrids. First of all, <clears throat> just for the uninitiated out there, give us a little rundown on hybrid publishing versus self-publishing. Versus traditional publishing. Versus traditional publishing. So there's publishing. a continuum, right? So um, my first my first book, actually, my first book was Wired Style right. when I was at Wired Magazine, and Wired Magazine published it. So, yeah, so right. you were right and I was wrong. So, so ironically, or, or maybe not ironically, but fortuitously, you know, my first book was done outside of traditional publishing where I worked at a magazine. I was the copy chief. I was making all kinds of decisions all the time. The edit- copy editor of The New Yorker called and asked what we did with email. The copy editor of Te- Texas Monthly and asked, called and asked what we did with CD-ROM titles. So I was just in this seat where I was telling experts, far more experts than I, what to do uh, in About this new frontier. And, mm-hmm. and what these words meant. You know, mm-hmm. I, what's the plural of mouse, a computer mouse? Is it mices or is it mice? Is it mouses? Is it what, what, what is the plural? Is the plural? I say the plural of mouse mice. is no mouses. Is mouses. Computer mouse to dis- differentiate it from I the agree. insect. So I, I use the model of louse. I've, tra- I've seen mice. Larry. Check out Laos because Laos is a word. Laos, the, the country? Lice no. is the insect that goes into your head. And Laos. And Laos's are bad people. So I, that's the model, really. What's the plural of Prius? Priuses, isn't it? Not Prius. It's, no, because it's not Latin. We're not living in Latin anymore. Are you we're not Romans. Latin? No. I don't no. even know where Latin would be. <laughs> but anyway. Um, Having completely lost my train of thought. Train of thought was we were differentiating so traditional Wired, publishing. So here I was at Wired, and I went to the editors, and I said, "We got to do a book. We have a book. Everybody's asking us." Good I was, initiative. I was, you know, had this style guide, and I said, "Let's just put it between covers." And they did a little bit of research, and they decided to uh, publish the book. So my first experience of book publishing was self-publishing, hybrid publishing, call it what you want to call right. it. My my bosses decided to and, and put back, my work between covers. And back then, there was really no such thing called hybrid or self-publishing. There was vanity publishing, but right. that was a different thing entirely. Right. But we did, you know, we made some phone calls. We called Addison Wesley, which published the that AP book, Style sure. Manual. And Addison Wesley told us that, and someone asked, I can asking imagine questions like, if you had a style guide that was talking about this new language, you know, would you be interested in publishing? They didn't reveal they were from Wired. And the person at Addison Wesley said, well, if you had a brand name attached to it like Wired, we would definitely be interested. Excellent. And so we published Wired Style. And the other thing that was different then was Amazon was brand new. And because it was Wired Style, it went to number nine on Amazon. We could call ourselves a bestseller basically because um, we happened to – Climb the charts at Amazon in the early days of Amazon very quickly. So that was an interesting experience, and that was a hybrid experience. So I you personally didn't self-publish it. Mm-hmm. My employer published it, but it did very well, and it ended up uh, the second edition ended up being published by Random House. And so that was my first experience. My second experience was Sin and Syntax, which was published with uh, Broadway Books, a division of Random House. My third was Norton. So, you know, kind of really kind of prestigious. Checking off the boxes. Um, not one yep. of the big five, but one of the really prestigious literary houses. 
and uh, and all they wanted was more language books. And really, the language thing for me has been a sideline. It's never been my primary interest. Mm -hmm. It's never been what I write about as a journalist or what I'm especially interested in. And so I felt like I was pigeonholed. And I think this happens to you. You're a victim of your success sometimes. Absolutely. You do one thing. What is it? Mm -hmm. Didn't Joni Mitchell do that one time? And I think on one of Joni Mitchell's live albums, someone shouts out for the audience from the audience. Some hit. Play the hits. Hit that they wanted to play. And she goes, You know, no one ever said to and go, hey, paint a starry night again, man. <laughs> but I think that's what happens. You sure. do one thing well, and then that's what you become known for. And I found myself in this box. I'd done three three language books. That's all they wanted more of. The thing I'm really interested in happens to be something that mainstream culture and mainstream publishing is not interested in at all. Which is? Native Hawaiian culture and this amazing history, tragedy, politics, um, culture that exists. It's part of the United States and not part of the United States. It's been vastly misunderstood by most people. And um, that's what I really – that's what I'm passionate about. And so some of my journalism recently has covered the um, comeback, the great Hawaiian language comeback. You know, a language that was almost dead has been revived. It's one of six languages, uh, indigenous languages that, <clears throat> that, that are generally cited in, in that, in that so, way. So it came to pass you had two books, right? A children's book and this other book. And – were, I know that – was it the children's book that your agent had and said they couldn't sell or was it the other so one? So I had a children's book that was that set on Hawaii and probably 10 years ago I had a children's book agent who shopped it all over the country couldn't sell and it. couldn't sell it. And so I because took it Because it was set in Hawaii. Really? I don't, I don't know that it was because it was set in Hawaii as much as it was – in, indirectly. Because I thought I think, it kind of like limited the they, – they felt it limited the audience, the audience somehow. No. I, okay. I don't think it was so much that as, that as it is that it was a Hawaiian setting and mm-hmm. a Hawaiian tree. And mm-hmm. I – what I realized is that if you've never been on the beach in Hawaii and you've never mm-hmm. seen that particular right. tree – you can't imagine this story. Like, you don't have a picture of the tree in Got your it. head. It. And it took a Hawaiian editor to say, oh, an ironwood tree, and to understand exactly what I happens see. to these trees, mm-hmm. and then to be able to visualize the book. So for kids' book, it's so much about the editor being able right. to see. And finding the right artist to bring that exactly. to life. Exactly. And so it was so interesting, the first publisher that I sent it to in Hawaii. And so the, in, in the intervening time, I took it back from my agent, and I thought, I'll just self-publish this. Mm-hmm. I love this story. What year I know was this kids. that you were going to do it? Was this I before or after the like, self-publishing revolution? Kind of. I, well, it was like 2005, 2007. So a little early sometime, still, you know, yeah. So, but, but, I mean, you can always self-publish a book. I kind right. of knew that. But and it was I thought, before I'll just the whole like, Guy Kawasaki artist whatever entrepreneur thing maybe i mean it was before the big um the big push but um and be- before amazon really invested in, mm, in right. amazon singles i mean a, there are a number of instruments that have developed since then so i thought i said to my agent i proposed self-publishing it because it was a way for me to get the book back from my agent um because they had invested a lot right. in it and i wanted to sort what'd of your agent say they're like yeah you know maybe regional it. is better and mm-hmm. i said i just have this feeling it has to be done in hawaii she said maybe that's right you know good luck let us know what happens but then i started to try to find an artist i have a friend in hawaii who has this little publishing business you know it's really hard to find an illustrator and uh, i did especially a good one for kids books it's it's yeah. not it's easy one thing to find an artist it's another thing Correct. to find an illustrator Absolutely. i wanted an illustrator that was also an artist yeah. um yeah so anyway we we thrashed about we approached different artists and my friend was really confident that she knows asia asian printing she she felt really confident that she could print it and market it um, but it was going to cost me $11,000. Wow. And I don't know about you, but I don't usually have $11,000 in <laughs> my you, bank account. Right now, um, <laughs> so I thought, okay, that's, that's interesting. That's some, like kind yeah. of a lot of money to come yeah. up with just for the sake of getting my cute little children's book between covers. And so that, you know. Was, that's why they call it vanity. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, that that was discouraging. I was I was ready to push go when I had an illustrator, actually. But that was a lot of money. Yeah. And I thought, let me, before I do that, let me send it to Chronicle Books because we had because of the grotto connections connections to Chronicle Mm -hmm. Books and I had uh, sent it to Chronicle Books actually many years before and they were sort of interested but they rejected it and then I thought okay I'm just going to send it to this editor in Hawaii just 
in case, and she got right back to me. She loved it. She said, it's going to have a small market because it's lyrical and it's very poetic. And a lot of books, children's books that sell in Hawaii are really cheesy. Um, so, but she took it. And it's regional publishing. And what that means is that I'm essentially the publicist on the, the publisher on the mainland. I mean, to get it into bookstores on the mainland... To get any sales in the mainland, so you got to do the hustling. So that's the hybrid part. Even though that's it's a the hard regional, part. yeah, you know, it was published by a publisher, but it's They're hybrid. Like, we'll, it, we'll do it for you, but you got to do all the marketing. Yeah. But how and I had difference? to buy, and I had to buy five hundred copies of the book. Okay, that's the yeah. Hybrid I saw part that right part in your blog. So all of a sudden, I mean, that, that starts to feel like, right? it, it, like yeah. Okay. All of a sudden, that starts to feel like yeah. self-publishing. You know, it's like well, three thousand dollars is better than eleven thousand dollars. Three thousand dollars, but it's still three thousand dollars. But she said you can buy them in installments of fifty and. Right. You know, good. it started to become doable. By the way, I've already sold the five. I was going to say, yeah. you yeah. are a master, though, at creating yeah. these You're great, hustling, yeah. just these I, great events, events, and I've come up with some some ways to sell this. But anyway, um, that was all happening simultaneous to me trying to figure out what I wanted my next book to be and how to get out of this pigeonhole of being a language writer. And I was looking for a subject. I talked to my agent about a couple of Hawaiian subjects. Most of the time, New York just kind of, uh, their faces sort of crumpled when I said Hawaii. And there wasn't That really surprises me. I thought people love Hawaii. People love Hawaii, but there's no market. If you they go, they, if you they love go Hawaii to if it's like a, about the Royal Hawaiian Resort. And, Maybe. Yeah. All you have to do is go on to BookScan and see books that are published in Hawaii and see the miserable sales huh. figures. And you'll what about understand. that Sarah Val book? Did that do well? Yes. I mean, because she's Sarah Val, and it was really funny. It was about missionaries. So Sarah That's Val, funny. Sarah Val's Hilarious. book did very, very well. Mm-hmm. But And but and I think you, there are some history books. Julia Flintseiler, our colleague right. here at the Grotto, um, did a history book. So there are some history books, but I wasn't didn't want to write a history book. Mm-hmm. I wanted to write about Hawaiian culture, contemporary Hawaiian culture. Right. And so um, the, it, it's a long story how it happened, but basically I started having a bunch of conversations with my hula teacher – because I do the hula newsletter, and I was getting really sick of doing this little newsletter every year for 15 years. And I told him I wanted to quit, that I just it didn't interest me anymore to do an eight-page newsletter. And I said, "What's our mission here? What are we trying to do? Why are we even doing a newsletter?" And I started asking him all these impertinent questions because you're not supposed to ask your kumu questions. It's like a cultural. It's like a thing. sensei or something. Or sensei. Sensei. Yeah. I mean, you you know, your kumu asks you ask things of you. But I was so I was saying, what's our mission? What are we trying to do? And he came back a couple of days later and said, I want to write a book. And he I, wants to write a book. Yeah, he says, I want you to write a book. Okay. You know, I, I think we should do a book. No more newsletter. I'm sick no of writing. I'm sick of writing I'm, newsletters. We're gonna okay, write, we're going to write a book. Okay, right, and, I, and I'm kind of like, whoa. Okay, and then he That's and I started cool. talking, and the more I started, I was talking with him, and I said to him, if I'm going to write a book, I'm going to write the book that I want to write, and I'm going to write a book that I think. A mainstream publisher would publish. Um, I'm going to bring a certain set of expectations to it, and he was like, oh, "You know, great. The better by him." So, long story short, wrote a book proposal, and my agent told me, "I can take this to the market, but I can't get a big advance for you because there aren't any books. I can't show a market. Right? No you comparable platform. As they like, say in the real know, estate world, no comps." No comps. Yep, no comps. They said that in the literary And I realized well. that when I was doing <laughs> – I when I sent her the book proposal, I said, we have a problem. There are no comps. Right. And so she said, you know, we can do a museum publisher. We could do an academic publisher. Right. I could see I could see both of those being possible. Yeah. But and, hearing you, that, and you'll get like $1,000 yeah, or $5,000. And then you like get 15% of royalties the... and no one will see it. And, right. You know, and she said – but she said, do you think – because I had said in the book proposal that because of his falling, I was pretty sure we could sell 4,000 books. Mm-hmm. Just on our own, right. that we could deliver that. And she said, "Do the numbers. How much are you going to charge for this book? How much is it going to cost to do this book?" And very quickly, if you do the numbers, if you charge forty dollars for the book and you're getting the full sale price, mm-hmm. you only need to sell two thousand books to make up the let's say eighty thousand dollar cost of producing right. the book. Mm-hmm. And I'm using gross numbers, right, right. but you can kind of see like, oh, wait, Everything so wow, actually, if we think we can sell this many books, we could actually do this. And so it, it so it was going to be, you know, is that self-published or is it hot? I mean, technically, 
his arts organization, this Hulu organization, Mm -hmm. which is a very healthy arts organization in San Francisco, was going to be the publisher. I'm still the author, and we have an a publisher-author agreement. But what, other than, other than uh, I guess, giving you the startup cost, what could they do for you? Well, they could sell books at shows and they, okay, they could, yeah. Yeah, so so they they could fund the money and they, then they he's a got a platform. Yeah. Between my platform and his platform, they have a big following. we're talking, he's got a very large following. Yeah. So his email list, his devoted fans, his mm-hmm. students. Um, so that was, and, and, it, and it's hybrid the reason I call it hybrid, well, first of all, I'm not technically publishing it. Right. But I really have been like a self-publisher. I hired the editors. I hired the copy editors. I hired the designer. I, we. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's this um, relatively new press. She writes press. Um, whose publisher, Brooke Warner, is a book consultant. And I hired Brooke to help us identify the designer Get the book printed, and she has started a small publishing company called Spark Press. Brooke Warner has started a small company called Spark Press, which exists to enable market-ready writers with books that traditional publishing might not publish for a variety of reasons to be able to publish their books. And the advantage of doing it with Spark, and this is where it really becomes a hybrid, is that Spark has a relationship with Ingram. Mm, so okay. so that's, for me, the hybrid part is like, well, it's kind of self-publishing, you know, de facto, because mm-hmm. we are kind of paying for everything and doing everything. But we've partnered with this co-publisher which is, that has a relationship with Ingram. So all of which a sudden, is crucial book, for distribution. Yeah, all of a sudden, you know, you can walk into any bookstore in the country right. and order the book. Right. Do you know of anyone else who's releasing books in this way? Because it seems like, it, I don't want to say you made it up as you went along, but it seemed like it developed as it went along. It did develop as it went along. And, you know, be, remembering that I originally intended the book to be published by a traditional publisher. Yeah. And then it was actually my agent who said, I think there might be another way to go here. So what happens with your agent, though? Does your agent yeah. get some cut then? Not nothing. No cut. So no, that was just, just a nice agent. Just my yeah. enduring love yeah. <laughs> and loyalty. Yeah. Um, but and what happens so, if you do it this way and you're like, hey, I'm pocketing 50% on each book. Screw this agent thing. I'm just going to do this. No, it's way too hard. I mean, I this particular book, like so I would never work. be able to necessarily replicate this. This is yeah. something that I – a subject that I've been writing about already for 15 years. I've been working with – I've been collaborating with this particular person. I knew it was a great story. They had the money to fund it. Then the support, and we had this platform, this extra platform, not just my platform, but his platform. I can't replicate that. Yeah, so a kismet type of thing, yeah. Yeah, you know, I I, I can't just pick a subject and and replicate this experience, and then, nor could other authors out there. But there are other, I think, you know, She Writes Press and Spark. I mean, there are. Absolutely. There are publishers who are looking at this. And wait, who's the woman, um, Bridget, remind me, who's the woman who, um, away with, in Marin? Peg Alfred oh, Purcell, who has a who very did, successful uh, Why There Are Words. Why There Are Words, which is yeah. a very successful literary series where writers come and talk. Right. And she finally decided, you know, this is this or something wrong with this picture. Right. There are all these fabulous women writers right. whose work ought to be being published. It's not getting published. I'm gonna do an I think it's an anthology. Right. So I mean there are people out there who saying who who look at it and say, We can make this new model work. And that's what I call the hybrid model. So as we're getting ready to wrap it up then, moving forward for your next book, which way do you think you'll go? Or does it depend on the book? It definitely depends on the book. And I have to say that I do research on this because I write a lot about the book industry. And I have done research that shows that the least well-paid authors are self-published authors. It makes sense. The best I saw paid that, been, authors that, and each number are, was hybrid, <laughs> are hybrid, hybrid authors. Yeah. And the authors who go with traditional publishing are in between. And I saw mm-hmm. that and I thought, huh, you really, as a writer, you've got to just be open and be creative right now. And I thought, this is a time for me to explore hybrid publishing. I mean, this is a, clearly, if you can figure out which things you do traditionally, which things you do in a new model, um, if you can figure that out for yourself, um, you're part of the the cresting wave. You know, and you're not being left behind. And so, and the fact is, even as a traditional uh, author publishing, even as an author publishing in a traditional model, 
you're still having to do a lot of the things that you're doing as a hybrid author. You're more still and having more, to yeah. more and more, right? You still have to build a platform of your own. You still mm-hmm. have to I mean, be hustling to design. Sell. I mean, there was a well, that's ton true. Of that's true. Okay, you know, I don't know what I'm talking about. I actually don't know what I'm talking about. Once the book comes yeah. out, I mean, I think the project management. I hate project management. Yeah. I've done it so much. I used to be a managing editor at Wired magazine, right. various magazines. I hate project management, and that is the hardest thing. Yeah, yeah, and true. I had to be the project manager on this. Well, that's sort of. I mean, that's sort of the reality though for writing in any way. Now, there's a lot of sucky stuff we have to do that we didn't want to do. <laughs> but, you we know, I feel like this is adulthood, friends. Yeah. I feel really, you know, I have to say these two books came out. I think they're beautiful. They're beautiful. Um, mm-hmm. they, I'm so proud of each of them. I have no idea what I'm going to do next or what it's going to look like, but I feel I certainly feel like I'm less pigeonhole me now yeah. as um, a grammarian. As a grammarian. I do want to say one thing about Connie's upcoming events, and that is that she runs a fabulous, fantastic, wonderful, um, and useful writing retreat. Oh, yes. Tell, so actually, I was about to tell her, tell, you know, people how they can get a hold of you and all that stuff, mm-hmm. but include uh, that uh, Hawaiian writing retreat well, here I have, as well. I have uh, two websites. One is sinandsyntax.com if you're really interested in the language stuff. And then my other website is constancehale.com. But Constance the great, great blog entries if you're interested in writing and the business of writing and language. Yeah, thanks. I try to have it be Absolutely. really helpful. And there are, there are different writers who appear on there. Um, so, uh, but I do lead this writer's retreat, and there's a little bit of log rolling going on right here uh-huh. because at the next writer's retreat, which is uh, in May, May 7th through 12th, one of the instructors is none other than Bridget Quinn. Hey, that sounds oh, great. Oh, my God. And Bridget um, was a couple this, years uh, ago a writer. she's uh, from Montana, right? I know. <laughs> um, but she, Bridget was there a couple years ago as a writer in residence, and another one of our instructors this year is Zoe Carter, who's also from the Grotto, and then the third of our main instructors is Linda Watanabe McFerrin, who is the leader of Left Coast Writers, an important writing group here mm-hmm. in the Bay Area. So the, um, that's an annual thing. Do you have um, a, a website or something that people can... Yeah, it's hard to give you the website because it's... Can I go the, through your website? Mokulea Writers Ooh. Retreat. So you have to get that. that we have trouble with branding. M-O-K-U-L-E-I-A. Mokulea mm. Writers Very Retreat. Vowel-y. And um, it's uh, it's different. It's it's small. It's high quality. But we also have people who are relatively new to writing. It's we invite Native Hawaiian cultural experts to come talk about uh, chanting hula. Um, we go to a sacred site every it's year. We go to a different sacred site. So the one of the advantages is not only do you get to do some great. Beach walks and some great writing and workshops, but you get a view of Hawaii that you would never otherwise get as a visitor. Amen on that. Absolutely. Uh, can they unbelievable. Con- do you have a Twitter feed people can follow? At Connie Hale and at Sin and Syntax. Okay. And we are at the Grotto Pod. We are at the we Grotto Pod. We are at the Grotto Pod. We have a new Twitter account. at that Larry Rosen. BQ, you are at? I am at B Quintrust. Quintress. Like Pinterest? Get like it? Pinterest, but with a Q. And two N's. Quinn. Uh, that wraps it up. BQ, take us out. Okay. Read, write, just keep working. And Connie will give us some hula lessons after this, I hope. I hope so, too.